Okay, hey, thank you all so much for being here tonight. Um, this microphone won't mean a thing in the world to you. Uh, they're recording this, so it doesn't help us in here at all. So you just got to listen close, and I'll talk loud as I can. All right, but thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Bible school goes from tonight until Thursday, but Thursday night is family night, so we will not meet on family night. We go from tonight through Wednesday. So secondly, Bible school goes from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. You think we're going to go to 8 o'clock? Not a chance in the world. <laughs> I guarantee you we're not. So uh, we'll, be, we'll be out probably by before 7. Now, if, for, if you are in here and you've got kids in Bible school, that means you're going to have to kind of hang around. And I, I don't, I hate that, but, uh, but anyway, we don't want to wear you out. All right, let's, uh, let's have prayer. You, you just came in. You need an outline, don't you? You need a handout. Yeah, if, who's got a handout back here? Okay. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for salvation. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father in heaven, we praise you for allowing us to understand the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit as we seek you. So Lord, we pray again with David that you will open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, now I'm assuming there are three different folks in here. Number one, there are many in here who are not Calvinist. Number two, there are some in here who are Calvinist. And number three, there are some who've never heard of the word Calvinism. You don't know what it is. So I'm glad all of you are here. We're going to study about Calvinism. Let me give you my goal, first of all, before we begin to look at the outline. My goal is not to win a debate. All right? That's not my goal. Matter of fact, I don't want to have a debate. When I debate, I usually lose. So I'm not interested in a debate. So here's what I'm saying. I want you to feel free to respond, to speak up, to ask a question, anything in the world. You feel free to disagree with me. That won't hurt my feelings one bit. But what I don't want anybody to do is stand up and start to make a speech and, and debate. If you want to do that, come to me after the class. I'll be right here. We'll talk all night. But, uh, but instead of doing that in the class, because that'll just eat up all of our time. All right? So my goal is not to win a debate. Secondly, my goal is not to settle the differences that have existed for 1,700 years. The difference between Calvinism and non-Calvinism has been going on. That debate has been going on for about 1,700 years, and we're not going to settle it until we get to heaven. But this is why I want to, to share. My goal is to do this. Fairview, as I understand it, has always been a traditionalist church, not a Calvinist church. And one of these days, you're going to be calling a pastor. Now, when you call a pastor, if you're going to be a Calvinist church, then call a Calvinist pastor. But if you're not going to be a Calvinist church, don't call a Calvinist pastor. And let me just tell you this. When you look for a pastor... If he's under 40 years of age and he's a graduate of one of our seminaries, there's a good chance he's going to be a Calvinist. Now, I hope the church will call a young man. I'd love to see the church call somebody under 40 years of age. And, of course, from one of our seminaries. I'm just saying whoever that committee is and whatever the church does as you talk to this guy, 
you make sure where he stands theologically. Because, as I said again, our Southern Baptist Convention has swayed in the last 30 years to the point that I'd say every one of our seminaries now, we have six seminaries, every one of our seminaries are basically Reformed theology seminaries. They're Calvinistic seminaries. And uh, that's just where we are. Southern Baptist Convention is next week. I hope to go if I'm, if I'm able. But, uh, but, uh, but that's where we are as a denomination. So most of our presidents of our seminaries are strong Calvinists. So what I'm saying is if somebody's graduated from one of our seminaries in the past 20, 30 years, they're probably going to be, and you need to check them out really, really good. All right? That's all I'm saying about that. Now, the issue of Calvinism is this. The sovereignty of God over against the responsibility of man in salvation. In salvation. The sovereignty of God. God elects people to be saved. You believe that? I want to show you why I believe it. Take that page number one. Look at all these verses on election. All of these verses on election. On the other side are verses on predestination. Do I believe in election? Absolutely I do because I believe the Word of God. Do I believe in predestination? Absolutely because I believe the Word of God. And you can go all through these verses and you'll find how God uses the word chosen or elect in many different ways. For example, he says God chose his son to be his servant. God chose the apostles. God chose the one to replace Judas. God chose these servants. John 15, he said, you did not choose me. I chose you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Look, uh, look at this verse at the top of, uh, of uh, let's see what page, the second page. Um, where it says, verse, the, the second one down, 4, it's Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he, hmm? you don't have, I've got to need another one over here. Yeah, the election page. Okay, we're, we're probably out. Okay. But look, look at Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, that's, that's pretty plain. God chose us before the foundation of the world. So do I believe in election? Absolutely, I believe in election. So that's the sovereignty of God. Now, let's look at the responsibility of man. Now, what does responsibility mean? It means the ability to respond. The ability to respond. So, when God, when I understand I need to be saved, here's the question. Do I have the ability of my own free will to say yes or no to Jesus? And I believe I do. I believe I do. I believe God chose me before the foundation of the world. And yet at the same time, I believe that when I understood I needed to be saved, I had a free will of my own mind. I could have said no, I did say yes. Now, how do you put those together? Well, that's the dilemma. That's the dilemma. And so there are three groups that put it together in different ways. Number one, there is the Calvinist group, whom I love, and we're going to look at the history of that in a minute, the Calvinist group. I believe they 
overemphasize sovereignty to the underemphasis of the free will of man. I believe they're unbalanced in that way. They overemphasize the sovereignty of God, but underemphasize the free will of man. And we're going to find out that in all honesty, most Calvinists do not believe men have free will. So they're the Calvinist group. Secondly, there is the Arminian group. I doubt we have anybody in here who's an Arminian. An Arminian is unbalanced because they overemphasize the free will of men and underemphasize the sovereignty of God. And so they say, really, it, it all depends on me. You know, it's not up to God. It's all up to me. I can choose to be saved, and then later on I can choose to be lost and lose my salvation. And so if you know of anybody that says, I can lose my salvation, they're an Arminian, and they, they're unbalanced in that way. The third group is the traditionalist. Now, here's where I got that word. I have studied so many books on, on Calvinism, and, and all of those basically that are written by the Baptist tradition have used that word, traditionalist. I'm a traditionalist. And that's what that means. It means I believe in the election of God. I believe in the free will of men. Can I understand it? Can I reconcile it? Can I put it together? No. And I have to live with that theological tension. I have to live with that, that I can't figure it out. I can't understand it. I don't believe anybody's going to understand it until we all get to heaven. So I can live with the fact that there's something I do not understand. So here's the Calvinist on one side, overemphasizing the sovereignty of God, the Arminian underemphasizing or overemphasizing the free will of men, and then there's the traditionalist. It's like for Papa Bear, the porridge was too hot. For Mama Bear, the porridge was too cold. For Baby Bear, it was just right. The traditionalist is just right. All right, that's where we are. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, look at your outline. We're going to look here by, uh, by talking about the historical record of Calvinism, Reformed theology. Calvinism is a, a better ter term. It's not Calvinism, but a better term is Reformed theology, and we'll see why in a minute. So that's the term we ought to use mostly. All right, let's go back, first of all, to the early church fathers. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to share with you the different views, but I'm sharing with you from my point of view. I'm going to be biased. I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from, all right? So let's look at the early church fathers, some of the early church fathers. These are some of the ones that were most influential in the early church. Now, by church fathers, I mean those who lived, most of them, in the second, third, fourth centuries, you know, after the apostles were dead. These men are not apostles. These men were church leaders. They were just like me and you, just regular guys. They were not apostles. But they were very influential in the early church. Ignatius, possibly a disciple of John the Apostle. Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, uh, Tatian of the Syrian. I'm not going to name them all. But all of those believed in free will. They believe man has free will except for the last one, Augustine. Or Augustine. You can say it either way. Augustine or Augustine. Probably Augustine. Augustine was a bishop uh, of the church in Hippo in North Africa. And of the church fathers, he is the one that seemed to emphasize the sovereignty of God more than the free will of man, more than 
any of the others, and I'm sure there were others that, that agreed with Augustine, but he was the most influential one. So that takes us down to about 400, 500 years after, after Christ, all right? Now, the church, of course, when Constantine in 312, uh, the emperor of Rome, the Caesar of Rome, he, he saw a vision, he said, in the sky, the sign of a cross that said, uh, in this sign, conquer. And Constantine, the emperor of Rome, said he became a Christian. Now, did he? I don't know. Nobody really knows if it was real or not. But because of that, the church at Rome became the state church, and the church began to have power like the Roman Empire. It says, because man is dead in sin, he is unable to respond to God with saving faith. His will is not free. Therefore, it takes much more than the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration by which the Holy Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. And when the Holy Spirit makes you alive and gives you a new nature, then you can put your faith in Christ, but not until. But not until. In other words, they say life leads to saving faith. I believe the Bible says saving faith leads to life. Here's what I believe. I believe when I was a seven-year-old boy and I heard the Word of God, the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin. Was I dead in sin? Absolutely. But I don't, I don't define death in sin to the point that I couldn't make a choice. Reformed theology says if you're dead, you can't make a choice. I believe God gives man free will. And I believe in my own free will, after the Holy Spirit convicted me, I chose to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe when I received him by faith, then he made me alive. I was born again. The word regeneration means to be born again. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration means to be born again. So to me, Calvinism says you must be born again in order to be born again. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Total depravity. In other words, basically, you have no free will. Now, <clears throat> before I go on, let's just stop right there. The Calvinist says, yes, you do have free will. And this is Reformed theology's definition of free will. Suppose I say, all of you are invited to come to my house tonight for supper. Amen. Amen. Now, you've got a free will. Some of you will say yes. Some of you will say no. I call that free will. That's how I define free will. Here's how Reformed theology defines it. Before I invite all of you, I have the power with each one of you individually to manipulate your mind, to control your mind. And so I'm going to, I'm, before I ask, I'm going to miraculously manipulate Rick Bettis' mind and I don't want him to come over anyway, so I'm going to cause him to say no. 
Now, he has a free will. He can say yes or no, but his free will is already programmed by me. Now, do you call that free will? I don't call that free will. Now, I'd love to have Jane, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to program her mind to say yes. Now, I say, whoever wants to come, y'all come over tonight. What's he going to say? No, what's she going to say? Yeah, because I already programmed their mind. So the Calvinist view of free will is to say, oh, yes, you can choose any way you want. But God has already determined how you're going to choose. That's your free will. Well, that's not free will. That's not free will. So total depravity. Number two, U, see, T-U, unconditional election. God's choice of certain vision individuals under salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in his sovereign will. He gives faith and repentance only to those whom he has chosen. Now, I believe God chose us before the foundation of the world. But I do not take it as far as the Calvinist does because here's what the Calvinist says. God created some people to go to hell, and God created some people to go to heaven. Now, if you're of the elect, when you were born, you were, you were, you were elect before you got born. When you were elect, if you were elect, then you're going to be saved. But if you were not elect, God created you, and you're going to go to hell. Now, now, I mean, that's what, that's what unconditional is, election is, if you take it as far as Reformed theology does. Well, I don't believe that. Do I understand how God chose me, but I still have free will? I don't understand that. Maybe I will one day in heaven, but I believe it. I believe it. So, unconditional election. T-U-L. L stands for limited atonement or particular redemption limited atonement simply says christ did not die for the sins of the entire world he only died for the sins of the elect limited atonement so there may be some of you in here and jesus died for you but there may be some in here and he didn't die for you now that's called limited atonement now i know many calvinists who are four-point Calvinists, because they can't buy that. They won't go that far to say Jesus didn't die for everybody. And so there's a lot of four-point Calvinists I know. But if you're a five-point Calvinist, that's exactly what you're going to believe. Let me show you why I, why I don't believe that. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 John 2. Verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the payment. His death on the cross was the payment that satisfied God's wrath, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now that says Jesus died for the whole world. Now let's look again. Go back to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
All right, look at verse 1. 1 Timothy 2, 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now listen to this. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Who does he desire to be saved? All men. Look at the next verse. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for who? All. So I, I do not see how someone could say Jesus did not die for all when it says he died for all. So here's how the Calvinist does it. They interpret the word all not to mean all men, but all kinds of men. He gave himself a ransom for all kinds of men. Big men, little men, black men, white men, men from every nation. Not all men, but all kinds of men. Now, to me, that is reading into Scripture what is not there. It's, it's, I don't think it's there. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They would translate that or interpret that for God so loved the world of the elect that he gave his only begotten son. So if you want to take the words of God and interpret them in a way to fit into your theological system, you can do that. But I don't think that's the way to translate the word of God or interpret the word of God. What's Matthew twenty twenty eight say? For Christ gave himself as a ransom for many. Yeah, he did. He gave himself as a ransom for many. Here he says he gave himself a ransom for all. If he gave himself a ransom for all, he surely gave himself a ransom for many. And so in the gospel, that word many is just talking about, well, it says many. <laughs> but it means all because it says all right here. Good question. All right. So... <clears throat> We'll go on, but let me just let me just stop right here. The two reasons I don't believe in Reformed theology, we're going to go through all this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but the two basic reasons I'm not a Reformed theology guy is, number one, I believe it misrepresents the nature of God. I believe it misrepresents the nature of God that God would create somebody already chosen them to go to hell, that they cannot be saved. I don't believe that represents the nature of God as found in the Word of God. And I believe it, it violates the first principle of hermeneutics. Now, what's hermeneutics? We talked about it the other night. Hermeneutics is the study of interpreting the Word of God. What does the verse mean? And the first principle of the study of hermeneutics, interpreting the Word of God, is what was the author meaning to say when he wrote it in the first place? When Paul wrote to the church at Rome, 
And he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What did he mean by that? What did he mean by sin? What did he mean by all? What did he mean all? All right, so you're just finding out what did he mean? Well, he says Christ was a ransom for all. So I take that to mean that's what he meant, what he said. So I believe it violates hermeneutics. I believe it violates the nature of God. All right, T-U-L. Now we've come to I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace says God's offer of salvation to the elect cannot be rejected. His call to the elect irresistibly draws them to Christ. Cannot be, cannot be rejected. Let me tell you why I don't believe that. Turn to to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 18. Luke 18, verse 18. Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy wanted to be saved. Just like I wanted to be saved when I was a little boy. Well, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. First of all, Jesus knew this guy didn't believe he was God, so he dealt with that. He said, You... You don't believe I'm God. You need to believe who I am. Secondly, he said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. He said, I've done all these. That was his second problem. He didn't think he was a sinner. All these I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, when you got saved, did did Jesus tell you to sell everything you have and give it away? No. Why did he say it to that man? Because he looked into that man's heart, and he saw that man had a God, and that God was gold. And he said, you're going to worship that God, or you're going to worship me. You've got to choose. What choice did he make? He rejected it. He rejected it. It says he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. He resisted the call of God. He resisted the grace of God. What are those two words in verse 22? Follow me. Jesus was calling him, follow me. And he said, no. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, that man was not elect. No, that's not what he said. He said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, for a rich man, man, it's so hard because he's, he's in love with his money. And it's hard for a rich man to be saved. But that man resisted the grace of God, I believe. I do not believe in irresistible grace. Number five, the perseverance of the saints. All who are chosen by God are eternally saved. They are kept by the power of God and will persevere to the end. And I say, amen, which makes me a one-point Calvinist. <laughs> All right? I'm a one-point Calvinist. And uh, uh, that's, that's just where I am. Nobody would argue with that, that we're eternally saved. Praise, praise God for that. Now, when you think about Reformed theology, 
you think about Calvinism, just always remember that. T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity. You don't have a free will until God makes you alive. Unconditional election. God creates some that they cannot be saved. He creates them, and they're going to hell, period. Limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everybody. Irresistible grace. You cannot say no to God if he has chosen you. Perseverance of the saints. You're going to be saved forever. Now, you say, man, you're coming down pretty hard, aren't you? Well, I'm trying. But let's be honest. In all respect to our Reformed theologians, our Reformed brethren, they have a lot of good arguments, too. They have a lot of good arguments, too. So don't think I'm saying, you know, they're nuts. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this has been a a, a tension for 1,700 years. And, And some of the greatest theologians I know are Calvinists. I love commentaries. The best commentaries I have are written by Calvinists. They, they just seem to be the best commentaries. So don't think I'm, I'm, I'm putting them down. Don't think I'm saying they don't have arguments and so forth. They do. And if a Reformed theologian was teaching this class, it would be totally different. But I'm just saying it makes more sense to me not to believe in TULIP. By the way, the Arminians who say they could lose their salvation. They also have a flower, the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. (laughs) All right. Let's look. Let's look at some other doctrines of Reformed theology. Now, these are doctrines that you normally find in Reformed theology, but not by any means, not by all Calvinists. Infant baptism. Most Reformed theologians believe in infant baptism for this reason. They say baptism is to the new covenant as circumcision was to the old covenant. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The child of every believer should be baptized to show he is in the community of the new covenant. So the way I understand that, and I may be wrong on this, but the way I understand it, I think, is that if I'm saved, we got a saved family. When my baby is born, that baby is a part of my covenant family, and I'm going to baptize that baby, signifying that I believe with all my heart that baby is elect. So infant baptism, and, and they, they believe that. All right, number two. Excuse me? Okay, uh, baptism is to the new covenant as circumcision was to the old covenant. In the, uh, in the Jewish nation, they had to circumcise every little baby. And so now the Calvinist says we ought to baptize every little baby. Or I don't believe the, the, the Bible teaches that. All right, number two, baptism by sprinkling. Community of the new covenant. Thank you, community of the new covenant. Uh, baptism by sprinkling. Uh, do all Calvinists believe that? No, but most do. Replacement theology. 
For some reason, this is a part of Reformed theology, replacement theology. The idea that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. It is the belief that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people and that God does not have specific future plans for the nation of Israel. So most Reformed theologians will say, I don't believe God has any future for the nation of Israel. And all I'd say is, what a coincidence of what's happening in the Middle East. Now, we tell you two exceptions. Two exceptions. Men that most of you know of who, are, who don't believe in replacement theology, but they're, they're Calvinist. One is John MacArthur. Now, you know John MacArthur's five-point Calvinist. But John MacArthur believes just like most of us do about the nation of Israel, that God has a plan for the nation of Israel, and they've come back home, and, and they're going to be saved in the tribulation, and they're going to reign with Christ. I believe that about Israel. That's called dispensationalism. John MacArthur believes that. The other, you all met, many of you met not long ago, Danny Aiken. Uh, Danny Aiken led our marriage retreat. Danny may not be a five-point Calvinist, but he's probably four and a half. But... Uh, <laughs> But Danny believes in dispensationalism, believes that God has a plan for Israel just like, uh, just like most of us do. All right. Number four, elder rule. The authority to make the major decisions of the church is invested in the elders rather than the congregation. We believe, historically as Baptists, we believe in congregational church polity. That means that the church has a right to make the major decisions of the church. The elder system is that there's a group of elders and they make the decisions for the church. Now, sometimes they will give the church the right to, you know, to say, well, you know, that's good. But they basically make the decisions. I believe, I believe there is biblical foundation for a congregational system of making major decisions. In Acts 15, you read Acts 15, and you'll find that. Uh, by the way, I believe in elders. Here's what I believe, and I, if I had time, I'd show it to you. The word elder, the word shepherd or pastor, and the word bishop. There are three words, elder, pastor, bishop, or elder, shepherd, bishop. I believe all three of those are talking about the same office, the very same office. And what I believe, at Fairview, I believe we have elders. Myself, our other pastors, Philip, Nick, and, and Dawson. I, I believe we're the elders. I believe we're the pastors. I believe we're the shepherds of the church. And so uh, I, I believe we, I do believe that there are elders, and we are those. But we certainly don't say that the congregation can't make decisions, all right? All right. The doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. In other words, according to Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace are T-U-L-I-P. And if you don't believe in T-U-L-I-P, you really don't believe in grace. Well, I disagree with that. Same thing with the gospel. According to Reformed theology, the gospel is T-U-L-I-P. Arthur Constance said Calvinism is the gospel, and to teach Calvinism is, in fact, to preach the gospel. 
John Piper said the doctrines of grace, T-U-L-I-P, are the warp and woof of the gospel. And so there are those that say if you don't believe in all five points of Calvinism, you really don't believe the gospel. A few other definitions. Hyper-Calvinist, an extreme form of Calvinism that appeared in the mid-1700s that rejects the command to share the gospel. Now, now people throw that term around in a, in a negative way. I, I have friends, and they'll say, well, that guy is a hyper-Calvinist. No, he's not. He's a Calvinist. But because they disagree with him so bad, they call him a hyper-Calvinist. No, a hyper-Calvinist, I don't even know any hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist is somebody that says, we must not preach the gospel. If God wants to save them, he'll save them. It's only, that's up to God. We're not going to preach the gospel. That's right. That's right. But I'm not, I'm not hyper. You're not either. All right. Open theism. Now, that's a, an extreme on the other side. That's an extreme form of Arminianism that rejects the truth that God knows the future. Now, here's what the Arminians do. They say, in, in reaction against the Calvinist, they say, you know, the Calvinist says God has determined the future. They go so far as to say, well, God doesn't even know the future. That's called open theology or open theism, which is, that's a bunch of baloney. That God doesn't know. Now, now here's, what, here's what the Reformed theologian would say. Does God know the future? Absolutely. If God knows who's going to be saved, hasn't he already determined who's going to be saved? No. Just because he knows it does not mean he determines it. Our son John, who's in Kurdistan, when John was young, uh, Paula and I learned something about parenthood. Regardless of what anybody says, you cannot make your child eat. You just can't do it. You can beat them to death. You can't make them eat. And old John, man, he wouldn't eat hardly anything. All right, we're having turnip greens for supper. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, I know that John's going to say no to those turnip greens. But did I determine that? Did I make that happen? No, he's got his own free will. God can know the future without determining the future. But open theism says, no, God doesn't even know the future. All right, paradox. We all know what a paradox is, a figure of speech. It's a statement that seems to unite two opposite ideas for example, we become free by becoming a slave. That's true. That's a paradox. We know about that. Antimony, uh, antinomy rather, antinomy, an appearance of a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Antinomy is not a real contradiction, but it looks like one. For example, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That looks like a contradiction to me. But in the eyes of God, it's not. It's not. Well, explain how it fits together. I can't. I just believe the Word of God. I believe I'm chosen before the foundation of the world, but I believe whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can't put those together, but I believe it with all my heart. I believe it with all my heart. I believe anybody can be saved. I believe God desires all men to be saved. 
I believe Jesus died for all men. At the same time, we are elect if we're saved. That's antinomy. <laughs> we don't understand it. Hermeneutics, the art and science of interpreting the Word of God. The number one question of hermeneutics is, what was the author trying to communicate to his readers at the time he wrote it? That's how you interpret the Word of God. What did Ezekiel mean when he wrote to those captives in Babylon? I saw a wheel within a wheel. Well, I'm not sure what he meant, but I know if I can find out what he meant, that's what the verse means. What did the author mean when he wrote it? This is of extreme importance in our study of theology because it's based on the idea that God's true intentions are discovered through his words. So we understand what does the word of God mean by what was the, the intention of that author when he wrote it. All right. Now, I hope I haven't come across harsh. I probably have. And, and if I've offended any Calvinist here, I want to apologize because I don't want to come across harsh. Let me tell you now, and we're going to finish. Let me tell you why I love my Calvinist friends. Every Calvinist I know believes in the inerrancy of the Word of God. Every Calvinist I know loves the Lord Jesus. Every Calvinist I know loves God's church. Every Calvinist I know believes the Bible. I love my Calvinist friends. I don't agree, but they're my brothers in Christ. So if I ever come across harsh in this, uh, you forgive me. I just feel very, very strongly. And, and, and here's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about it. It's because of what's happening in our denomination. The Southern Baptist Convention today is almost a Calvinist denomination. It's almost a Calvinist denomination. How did that happen? It happened from the influence of a friend of mine named Al Mohler. Al Mohler is president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Al Mohler is brilliant. I would hate to get in a debate with Al Mohler. I love him. He's my friend. I've preached in the chapel service at Southern Seminary. I graduated from Southern Seminary. I love him. But when he became president of Southern Seminary, he took that whole seminary into Reformed theology. Number two, the other seminaries followed. Number three, the leaders of the denomination followed. And so now we are basically a Calvinistic denomination. And that bothers me. <laughs> yeah, it just bothers me. Well, it's the pendulum swinging the other way because we almost got to the point where we were liberal. Oh, we were liberal. Yeah, praise God for that. We, well, our, our denomination went liberal. You're exactly right. We, did, we didn't even believe the Word of God in our seminaries. And God brought us back through men like Charles Stanley and Adrian Rogers and Jimmy Draper and, and, uh, and on and on. And, and we came back. And, and now all of our seminaries believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. Praise that. Praise God for that. But what's happened now is we've gone in the direction of Cal Calvinism. is not liberalism. But Calvinism is, is basically where the denomination is. So I say this again. If 
Fairview is not a Calvinistic church. If, 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 if this is not a Reformed church, and I don't think it is, then the next time you call a pastor, I'm just saying, be very careful. If a church is a Reformed theologian, a theology church, they ought to call a Reformed theology pastor. But if a church is not Reformed, don't call a Reformed pastor because it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. And so I'm just saying, remember TULIP. And when you have a chance, you may be on a committee or you may have a chance as a congregation to interview that pastor, just remember TULIP. Just ask him, do you believe Jesus died for everybody? Do you believe anybody can be saved? That's just where we are as a Southern Baptist Convention. And again, I hope you'll call a a man who's a graduate of one of our seminaries. But but just be careful. Just be careful. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Well, <clears throat> no, no, I think you're, I think you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, y'all may not have heard that. She said, if I'm a Calvinist, why should I share the gospel? Because God's already determined. And, of course, the answer is, their answer is, and it's the right answer because God's commanded us to. God's commanded us to. That's always the answer. But logically, I I know what you're saying. Here's here's my other problem. And one of my biggest problems, probably, it goes back to limited atonement. Suppose Spud and I are going to go out to lunch, and let's say Spud's lost. And I want to witness to Spud. If I believe in limited atonement, I cannot honestly say, Spud, Jesus died for you. Now, if I can't say that, I'm in trouble. My hands are tied. How can I share the gospel if I have to say, Spud, he might have died for you. I hope he died for you. Good chance he did, but I sure don't know. How can I share the gospel like that? That's right. That's right. All right. It's hot and it's late. Any questions? Unconditional election. Unconditional election. Yes. Dispensationalism, is that what it's saying? Let me find my page. Yeah, dispensationalism simply means that you and I believe that, that God has a future for Israel. That he's not, he's not finished with Israel. And praise God for John MacArthur, man. He's strong on that. All right, anything else? Yes, sir. Yep, they sure have. They they've gone woke, which means you know they're they're fine with transgender stuff and whatever. 
yeah, all that kind of stuff. I, I'll say one more thing, and then I'm going to leave, I promise. Our Southern Baptist Convention, like I say, I want to go if I can. It's in New Orleans next week. Here's the big issue for the convention this year. Are we going to accept churches with women pastors? Now, that's the issue. If you want to pray for the convention, pray for that. Rick Warren at Saddleback, of course, great, great church. Everybody knows about Rick Warren, the purpose-driven church. A great man of God, great church. They've won thousands to Jesus. But when he resigned, they called a pastor, and the pastor and his wife are both pastors. So the convention has said, no, Saddleback is no longer a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, now they're appealing to come back in, and they're really, you know, doing a lot of politicking to say, we're going to vote to let all these churches come back in, as long, even if they have women pastors. And so that's the issue this year. And, uh, and so you can, you can think about that and, and pray about that, all right? Hey, thank you so much for being here. God bless you. Tomorrow night, 6 o'clock. <clears throat>